All right. Let's think another day. If you could ask Jesus personally, if you could ask him one question, what would it be? One question. Some of you might have been faced with an opportunity to take a new job, and your, your question for Jesus might be, Jesus, should I take this new job? Maybe you have asked him that recently. Some of you have talking about moving up, maybe moving from an apartment into a home, and there's opportunities you've got to raise at work, and now you can buy a house, and God, should we buy this house? Should we buy in Aliso Viejo? Should we buy in Mission Viejo? Should we buy in um, Lake Forest? Where should we buy? Some have got a couple kids, and you're thinking, yeah, should we grow our family? Should we have another kid or two more kids? And that's the question you have for Jesus. But I had a question for Jesus recently, and uh, mine was, I asked Jesus how he liked the island of Malta. And I didn't ask him the normal way you, when you talk to Jesus. I asked him via telephone. And right now, if you're new, you're thinking, honey, what kind of church is this? This guy's whack. Let's get out of here. But before you head for the exit, hear me out. Hear me out. As I mentioned before, I work for the fire department. We get our rigs worked on when they break down, which ours did, by an outside agency called Performance Automotive. We took it to Performance Automotive. Um, the guy goes, yeah, your rig's broke. I'll take you back to your fire station in your fire engine, drop you guys off, and I got to bring it back, start working on it. And I got to get out of here early because I'm the caretaker for Jay Leno's garage, and I, want, I care after all his 200 cars, and I got to get back and get over to his place. I go, really? Well, that's cool. I go, who else cars do you uh, watch? And he goes, well, I, I watch Johnny Depp's cars, and I uh, take care of Michael Strahan's cars, Nicolas Cage, and also take care of Jim Caviezel's cars. And I go, Jim Caviezel? I go, that's like my favorite actor, man. I go, that guy was Jesus in The Passion. And he goes, and I go, he's in my favorite movie ever, The Count of Monte Cristo. And there he is. And he goes, hey, well, not only do I take care of his cars, he's one of my best friends. When we get to your fire station, I'm going to call him up and let you talk to him. And I go, perfect. I go, that's awesome. So we do. We get to, uh, we get to the station. He gets his cell phone out, dials up Jim Caviezel, puts him on the phone, and I said, Hey, Jim Caviezel, movie Jesus, how did you like the island of Malta, right? And because uh, that's where they filmed The Count of Monte Cristo. And he loved the island of Malta, told me all about it, said all those places were real in the movie. You can go there. You can swim in those blue lagoons. You can do the whole thing. And so that was my question for the man who played Jesus in a movie. So hopefully you're not headed for the doors yet. But tonight we see something far more serious. We're going to see that the scribes, Chief priests, the Pharisees, they've got a question for Jesus, and they have nefarious undertones with their questions. So if you have your Bible, if you could open it up to Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Luke 20, beginning in verse 1. Scared you for a second, huh? <clears throat> All right, let's read it together, and then uh, we'll get into the passage. It says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, here's their question, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I know Pastor Ben's already prayed once, but let's pray one more time before we get started, get into our passage. Hey God, thanks so much for this 
opportunity. Thanks for this passage in Luke chapter 20 and the other verses we're going to look at tonight. God, we pray that those here that know you would grow in their sanctification by hearing your word tonight. And we pray that those that don't know you um, would come to know you, God. They'd put their trust in you, repent of their sins, and be change their eternal address, God, so they'd be bound for heaven, God, when they die. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look up again at verse 2. He says, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? These things, what are these things? Well, if you remember back to the previous chapter, we learned last week, chapter 19, Jesus had entered the temple courts. He began driving out the money changers. Pastor Mike talked about this on the weekend. He made a whip. He turned over tables. He said to them, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. In addition to that, he's now teaching, the Bible tells us, in the temple daily, and they're offended by that. And they're saying, in essence, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority? You know, Jesus is going to answer them, obviously, indirectly, but if he would have chosen to answer them directly, he may have drawn on some of his own words in other parts of Scripture. Um, where did I get this authority? He may have said something like this from Matthew eleven twenty seven. I'll just put it up here on the screen. He could have said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. That would have been a direct answer. God the Father, that's where I got this authority. Or he may have drawn on his, his own words in uh, Matthew 28, 18. When he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's where I got this authority. I got it from my father. He would answer like that. He'd have been spot on and we know that. But I love the way he answered their question with a question when he says, hey, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? At this point, chief priests and the scribes, they don't really know what to say. So they say, hey, huddle up, huddle up. Huddle. They say, uh, hey, listen, guys, if we say from heaven, in other words, if we acknowledge that John is acting under the divine authority of God, he's going to say to us, why didn't you believe him then? But if we say it's from men, John's just some whack job, not unlike a Jim Jones or David Koresh, some guy just looking for a following. If we say that, the people will kill us because they actually believe that John is from God. So they break the huddle, they come back and they say, you know what? We don't know. We don't know where he's from, if the baptism of John was from, from God or from man. So I think it's interesting because all the people there, at least all the common people, they believed that John was sent by God. They believed he was a prophet. But the ones who should have known Scripture the best, the chief priests and the scribes, that was their job. That's what they do for a living. They claim they don't know if John was from God or not. Even though they were surely familiar with the passages in the Old Testament that foretold of John's coming and his mission as coming in the spirit of Elijah, um, passages like Isaiah 43, I'll just read it to you. It's what it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And here he is in the wilderness in camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey and fulfilled it spot on. It wasn't that they didn't believe that John came from God. It was they were unwilling to act on the truth that they already knew. In Isaiah 40 and other passages like that in the Old Testament. And unfortunately for the chief priests and the scribes, they had a pattern of not acting on what they already knew was true as revealed in God's word. Let's go back 30 years earlier. I know Christmas was just a little over a month ago. I thought tonight we could read the Christmas story together again. Although this isn't the Christmas story you're used to reading in Luke chapter 2. Matter of fact, this may be the saddest Christmas story you've ever read and it's found in Matthew chapter 2. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Super sad. <clears throat> it says this, now after Jesus was born, so he's already been born, it's past tense now, born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. 
Behold, wise men, magi from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born, who has been born, past tense, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, also known as the king of the Jews, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And without hesitation, the chief priests and the scribes, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah, found in Micah 5.2, they quote it verbatim, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Why is that the sad, one of the saddest Christmas stories you'll ever hear? Because this, because the wise men, they wanted to find Jesus to worship him. Herod wanted to find Jesus to kill him. Because like Pastor Mike was saying on the weekend, one crown, two kings. But the chief priests and the scribes, they knew the exact location that the Messiah would be born. They even quoted the passage. They knew it would be in Bethlehem. They knew that he already had been born. It had just been reported to them by the Magi. And yet, I want you to think about this next November, next December, every time you see a nativity set, you see shepherds there, you see angels, you see animals, you see wise men, you see Mary, Joseph, you see baby Jesus. But one thing that, that's conspicuously missing, you've never seen any chief priests, you've never seen any scribes in any nativity scene. You would have thought that they would have raced to Bethlehem as soon as they heard that the king of the Jews had been born as reported by the Magi. They even knew the passage, like I said, Micah 5.2. But there's no record at all of any of them making that trek to that little tiny town. They had it here as head knowledge, but they refused to act on God's revealed word. Not one of them went to Bethlehem. And here's where you might be saying, okay, Scott, that, that is interesting. Never thought about that before. But what does that have to do with me? Here I live in South Orange County in 2018. We're starting a new year. What's that got to do with my life? Well, my question for you and I is what part of God's revealed word are you and I refusing to act on, even though we already know it? We're a marriage group, so let's just talk in the context of marriage and family. I'll start with the husbands first. Husbands, you have the role, your role as a husband spelled out in exacting detail in Ephesians chapter 5. We've shared this numerous times from this platform this year and in years past. We'll put it up here on the screen. Ephesians 5, 25 through 29 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So husbands, how's that going with you? You know it. You know the passage. A lot of us can even quote it. We have quoted it. But are we acting on it? For example, are we cleansing our wives by the washing of water with the word, are you the spiritual leader in your home? Or does she have to drag you to church each week? Does she have to get on you to get you to do the, the small group discussion questions? Or are you the spiritual leader? Do you work hard at studying God's word so that you can share with what God's taught you with your wife? Or we didn't read it tonight, but Colossians 3, another passage we've taught many times from up here, when it talks about husband's roles, it tells us that husbands aren't to be harsh with our wives. 
Are you harsh with your wife? Has she sought counsel from Pastor Ben, Pastor Pete, one of our other pastors here? I know some have. Have they sought counsel because of the way you treat her? Is she afraid of you? Husbands, it's time we start acting on God's word, just knowing it's not enough. In fact, it just makes you more accountable the more you know. Let's shift gears, talk to the wives. Your role is found also in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. We'll put that up here on the screen. It says this to the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Gals, are you submitting to your husband as to the Lord, or do you keep coming up with excuses on why this passage doesn't apply to you? You might be saying, Scott, you don't know my husband. He's a hard man to live with. And just as soon as he starts being the spiritual leader that God's called him to be, that's when I'll submit. My submission to him is conditional. And now it's become a vicious cycle where he won't love you as Christ loves the church because you won't submit to him, and you won't submit to him because he's not leading you the way that you think he should. It's going around and around. Or ladies, have you forgotten what 1 Peter 3 says when it says that you should submit to your husband even if he doesn't obey the word. So I know there's a guy that's not loving you the way Christ loves the church because he doesn't even know Christ. And yet you're still called to submit to him. He's not even a believer. Maybe some of you have met at Starbucks to give other women, even within this group, counsel about how they should submit to their husband. All the while, you're not submitting to your own husband inside the walls of your home. Just a reminder, one day as believers, we're going to all stand at the Bema Seat judgment, right? This isn't the Great White Throne judgment, but it's a judgment for believers. Bema Seat, you'll have to give an account for how you fulfilled your role, irrespective of what your husband did. And the blame game won't work there for husbands or wives, like back in the Garden of Eden. Well, it was the snake made me do it. Oh, it was my, the wife that you gave me. That won't fly on judgment day. Talk to husbands, wives now. We've got a lot of parents in here. Most of us and the ones that aren't parents, chances are, will be soon. And so let's talk to the parents for a second. We have a verse for all of us as well, Ephesians 6.4. It's also up here on the screen. It says this, fathers, and can also include mothers, fathers, mothers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. How's that going inside your home? Are you bringing your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? And you say, well, I bring them to church for that. They're over in Awanas right now. And they come on the weekends, so that's good enough. I think it's great that they're in Awanas. I think that's great you bring them to church on the weekends. But that, what they learn at church is only supposed to supplement what their fathers and mothers are teaching them at home. Mom and Dad, do you read the Bible to and with your kids? Like Deuteronomy 6 says, the things of God, do you talk about these things when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk along the way? And even more so, have you become a good example a good model of what the Christian looks like within your home? Or has it become so bad that all you ever have is what I call a parking lot conversion? You're one way at home. As soon as you get at church, things change, right? And your kids see you as a hypocrite, someone they don't want to emulate when they grow up. I'm not saying any of this to slam us. We could all work on all these things, myself included. But we know these things. So husbands, wives, parents, if we're not doing these things, it's time to start. No more excuses. I put it this way on our outline. Number one on our outline, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees with all the information they had that they were refusing to act on. We need to act. We need to resolve to act on what you already know. 
Resolve to act on what you already know. And I hope it becomes like this. We've got, you're going to see in our small group questions tonight, number five, there's a great verse that Pastor Mike put on there, Psalm 40, verse 8. I'll just read it to you. It says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. That's the place I hope we find ourselves as believers. And if we're not there yet, let's get there so that we can say, husbands can say, I delight to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Wives can say, I delight to submit to my husband as unto the Lord. Parents can say, I delight to bring my children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Remember, 1 John 5 says that his commandments are not burdensome. I hope the commands of God don't seem burdensome to you. They shouldn't. He says they're not burdensome. If, if so, that could be a hard issue. That's something we're going to talk about later on in our small groups tonight. So, Let's stop with the excuses. Let's start acting on what we already know. All right. We have that passage we read in the beginning in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> but that's not the only place we find these same characters. I'm talking about the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, John the Baptist. They're also found in Matthew chapter 3, so if you could turn over there, I think you're already in Matthew 2, right? So let's turn over to Matthew 3, just one chapter over. Beginning in verse 7. This is maybe what Jesus was referring to when back in Luke 20 when he says, then why didn't you believe him? Believe him what? Maybe this is the passage he was talking about, what John said in this passage. Beginning in verse 7, it says, when he, we'll just read it and then we'll break it down. It says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming, Jesus, after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So it starts off there in verse 7. Hey, at least they're there. They came, right? They came to the baptism. They're standing up there on the riverbank. They're observers. And then he says there in uh, verse 8, he says, hey, you guys really want to get right with God? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not the fruit that saves you, just like for believers. It's not our fruit that saves us. It's just the evidence that we truly are saved, that we have repented and placed our trust in Christ. The fruit. If you want to know what that fruit is, look it up later in Galatians chapter 5, beginning verse 22. Hey, if you guys really want to get right with God, there should be evidence that you've been made right with God. And then and he says, and don't bank on the fact that, hey, we have Abraham as our father. Hey, we know we've read the Old Testament. He's our descendant. We know he had a right relationship with God. So I'm just counting on what Father Abraham and his relationship, and because I'm his descendant, I'm made right with God too. That's not the way it works. No more than the way it works here and, here and now with us, where we can't say, listen, my mom and dad are Christians. You know, uh, they used to bring me to church when I was a kid, and uh, Grandpa used to read me the Bible. Grandma made sure I listened to Christian radio doesn't work. You have to have faith for yourself. You can't rely on your parents' faith. You have to have your own. That old saying that, that God doesn't have any grandchildren, only children. And then verse 10, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, 
And every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, that you've refused to repent, you've refused John's message to put your trust in the coming Messiah, that person is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says, listen, I'm baptizing you with water for repentance, but Jesus is coming after me. He's mightier than I. His sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you. If you put your trust in him with the Holy Spirit, you'll be placed in Christ. The Holy Spirit will come to dwell with inside you. Then he says his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear his threshing floor. He's going to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff, the waste product, will be burned with unquenchable fire. You always see a distinction. We talked about last time I was up here, we talked about the wheat and the fake wheat, the Darnell, remember that? Um, we talked about sheep and goats, wheat, chaff. There's always a distinction. So now the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they stand there on the riverbank hearing that, hearing this message from John the Baptist. Faced with these decisions. And they think, do I get into the water? Not that the water saves them. It's what it represents. That I am going to repent and put my trust in, in the one that John was preaching about in Christ. Did they get in? Show of hands. This is audience participation. How many people think they repented of their sins? They walked down that riverbank. They got in the water and they let John baptize them. How many people think that? Raise your hand. We got one or two, a couple people. How many people think they did not do that? A lot of people, right? Well, the answer is found in Luke chapter 7. I'll put it up here on the screen. Luke chapter 7, beginning of verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this, common people, right? And the tax collectors, those are some of the worst sinners around. When they heard that, Jesus had just got done telling them that John, this is the context, that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet that's ever lived. Jesus told him that. Based on that, it says, when all the people heard this, Jesus' words, and the tax collectors too, heinous sinners, they declared God just. God's way of salvation is right. It's just. Because they had been baptized, baptized with a baptism of John, a baptism of repentance, looking forward to the Messiah. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, same guys in our story, guys standing up on the riverbank, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. There's your answer. They stood on that riverbank that day, faced with a choice, repent or don't repent. Rely on the faith of a family member or believe for myself? Bear fruit or get chopped down? Am I wheat or am I chaff? After they processed it all, they all said no thanks and they walked away, having not been baptized by John. And in doing so, Luke 7 tells us that they, I wrote it in big letters on my notes, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. What about you? If you're not a believer here tonight, and I know in a group this size, we have some people that have not yet placed their trust in Christ. If that describes you, are you rejecting the purpose of God for you? And you might be asking, what do you mean? What's the purpose of God for me? Well, and the short answer is his purpose for you, his will for you, the Greek word is boule, his will for you, is that you'd be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God isn't willing that any should perish, that any would be chopped down or be burned with unquenchable fire. Because hell, although it's not a popular subject, it's a real subject, it's a real place. He says he's not willing that any should perish there, but that all should come to repentance. See that recurring theme of repentance? It means turning from your sin and placing your trust in Christ. At this point, you might be saying, what do, what do you mean? I'm, I'm coming to church, I'm here tonight, I'm in Thrive, right? Yeah, but remember, those Pharisees, those chief priests, those scribes, they came to the riverbank too, they were there. They were at the baptism. But they left that baptism unchanged and unsaved. People walk into churches all the time and still leave the church unchanged and unsaved. 
Don't let that describe you. I put it this way, number two on our outline. If you're not a believer tonight, please implore you, like 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, we implore you, don't reject God's offer of salvation. Don't reject God's offer of salvation. I want to close with this. Uh, Go back to our original passage, back in Luke chapter 20, if you could. Luke chapter 20. We begin in verse 1. If you're uh, on a mobile device, go ahead and scroll up or turn there if you're in a hard copy Bible. Back to uh, chapter 19, the last verse of chapter 19, verse 48. Chief priests had been trying to kill Jesus, and it says, they did not find anything they could do, and catch this, for all the people were hanging on his words. All the people were hanging on Jesus' words. I don't fly a, a lot, but I do fly from time to time, and Heather and I just flew back to Tennessee two weeks ago, and as we're sitting there on the tarmac at LAX, bound for Knoxville, Tennessee, via Charlotte. Flight attendant got up like they always do, and she gave her safety briefing, her safety message, right? She's got the little yellow cup in her hand, and they said, if there's a sudden loss in cabin pressure, these yellow cups are going to drop from the ceiling. Make sure you put it on yourself first, and then put it on your child. It's oxygen. And if we were to crash over water, your uh, seat can act as, your seat cushion can act as a flotation device, and the exits, there's two in the rear, there's two all over the wings, and there's two up front. Make sure if you're sitting in an aisle section that you're able to remove the door and help out. And as she's saying that, guess how many people were hanging on her words? I looked up, none. Plain of about 200 people, zero people. Most people had their phones out there going like this, playing on their phone. Oh, put it in airplane mode. Okay, hold on, airplane mode. Okay, scroll, scroll, scroll. Businessmen got their laptops out. They're working on their laptops. Nobody was hanging on her words. Now, can you imagine... Once we take off at LAX, we get about 35,000 feet and say we're over Oklahoma, and all of a sudden you feel a, a jolt. You look out the window, the left window, and now the, there's fire coming out of the left engine, smoke and fire. The yellow cups have dropped out of the ceiling. She gets up there to repeat the safety message. You think you'd be hanging on her words now? I guarantee you when she says, this is what you need to do with this mask, you're going to be listening. When she says, hey, listen, if we crash over water, you're going to want to use this seat as a flotation device. When she tells you where the exits are, you're going to want to know where the exits are because you're going to want to get off that plane if you survive the crash. What changed? The message didn't change. The message was the same. The circumstances is what changed. We need to be hanging on God's words no matter whether our life seems smooth or whether we're going through some kind of trial. For some of us, what's it going to take? Is it going to take some kind of crisis in our life? Some loss of a job, some health crisis, something that happens to our kids to get us to hang on every word of God? I hope not. I hope that we're able to say, like we mentioned earlier, like the psalmist said, we already quoted it in Psalm 40, verse 8, that, and I delight to do your will, O God, because your law is within my heart, and come what may, whether things seem to be going smooth, or whether I'm going through the worst trial of my life, my hope is in you. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Hey God, thanks so much um, for this passage tonight, these different passages we looked at regarding uh, John the Baptist. And uh, God, we do as believers, we want to act on what we already know. We've read these passages, we've heard these, and if, even if we're a new believer, God, 
we can leave, least give testimony as to what's happened to us. Like the man in John chapter 9, the blind man, when they said, uh, a new believer, and they said, hey, what, what happened to you? And he goes, all I know is this, is that once I was blind, but now I see. But God, let us work diligently to know your word, to study it, but then most importantly, to act on what we learn in your word, God. And for those here tonight that don't yet know you, God, how merciful you are to share these things with us, warnings and yet encouragement. You, you tell the people, hey, you can have the Holy Spirit. You can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You can be saved. You can make your eternal address heaven instead of hell. Matter of fact, that's what you want from us, God. You said you're not willing that any should perish, but all of us should come to repentance. I pray that you'd show people that maybe have grown up with a warped view of you, God, maybe think that you're angry with them and that you're mad at them and you're excited to judge them. I pray that you'd show them tonight that that's not true. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, God. I pray that you'd show them that. And for all of us, God, I pray that no matter what we're going through, where there's a smooth sailing right now and life's going relatively well or whether we're going through the worst trial of our entire lives, God, that we would hang on every word that's come out of your mouth as we study it and as we apply it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.